Hi, you're listening to Pod Like a Hole. This is Eric Anderson, and I'm taking over the show again for another one of my B-side bonus episodes. Uh, as you know, we are a music podcast. Season one, we discussed Nine Inch Nails. Season two, we broke down every album, every song, every film appearance by David Bowie. Um, and in this third season, we're kind of throwing grenades out there and just scattershot covering our, our the albums that we feel are really important. Uh, and uh, I do like to do these bonus episodes when there is a writer who has given some kind of critical or personal analysis into music that, you know, that we're covering, something that overlaps. Um, and we have a writer here today who has written, uh, you know, many works of fiction, some less than fiction, some, uh, some nonfiction even. Uh, and I like to imagine one hand on the quill and another giving whatever the British middle finger gesture is. Um, but his uh, his new book uh, is coming out, Al, and I, you'll have to correct me on how I'm saying this because I even had to Google this word. I'll be on Secret History, Snapshot of England's Pop Rebels and Outsiders. And this will get to all of those things. Uh, so, dear listeners, it's my utmost honor to welcome Guy Minkowski. Welcome. Hello, Eric. Good to be here. Thank you. Um, when I first saw your name, I was really hoping I could just call you Mank. I feel at, at this point that, <laughs> that I get a lot of mileage out of that. Um, <laughs> That'll be but, fine by me. On, on Twitter, I'm, I'm G Mankow, so I've walked straight into those kind of linguistic <laughs> name jokes myself. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've gotten plenty of that. Uh, it was low hanging fruit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's fair, uh, it's fair game. It's all fair game. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, anyways, I uh, really happy to have you here. You're you're calling in from the other side of the pond. Um, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. I'm in uh, I'm Link I'm in Lincoln, and it's one of the first really kind of bright sunny days of spring. So, you know, really feel like 2021 is actually kicking in. So, yeah, all good here. That's good. That's good. Our what's I mean, what's what's it like out there? Is it is it kind of like here where it kind of depends upon where you are? If people are walking around being safe, are you guys like uh, maskless, he maskless heathens over there? What's what's uh, what's the situation? <laughs> what's going on is people are, are kind of covertly trying to live their life as normally as they can without getting arrested or doing anything too irresponsible. But I, I live overlooking this um, this wharf where the water is, and a lot of people are walking around and throwing bread at the ducks and that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, there's masks as well. It's a kind of a, there's a real air of caution. What's it like where you are? Yeah, it kind of depends upon where you are. Um, you know, the the bigger cities definitely have more of the mandates with masks. Um, some of the more conservative, and when I say conservative, I mean politically conservative states, um, look at no masks and not following guidelines as a rebellion. And it's funny to see that kind of take over whole states as, as their culture. Um, I'm, I'm phoning in from California, kind of more you know, progressive politically. I would say the culture is trying to be safe and following guidelines, but you get, you get yahoos, you know, everywhere you go. And, and plus I add onto that. I'm pretty much a coward anyways. I've been in my house, barely seen my family or friends in a, in, in a year. <laughs> so, um, 
And I live um, it's kind of overlooking the university and uh, it's very strange to have a flat which literally overlooks the place you work. It's just on the other side over the water and I can just see it gradually getting more and more lifelike as time goes on. But there's all of these signs going up about flow tests and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, we're entering this strange new era. So it's kind of worth us marking it, isn't it, Eric? Because if we didn't and we just kind of pretended this was a normal circumstance, we'd be like, what was it like back then? And it's just all changing all the time, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's always interesting to hear, to hear uh, you know, probably more alike than different are our experiences with this. So... Yeah. And I like I like your description of me having a quill in one hand and and a and a middle finger extended in the other. Um, <laughs> sometimes it was more middle finger than quill. Uh, I like to think there was a bit of quill going on as well, but it's not a bad description of what it was like. Awesome, that's great. Uh, so you're you're so you yeah you you said you worked at the university. What are you uh, what are you doing there? I mean, teaching well, of course. I, I, yeah, I teach creative writing, and um, we've got a partnership with the Guardian, so we do some classes with them, and. Um, yeah, it's all been quite strange. There was, you know, stuff behind visors and we were all kind of two feet apart and the students sit in these kind of Dalek-like seats in which they're self-enclosed. It's, it's been a bit, it's been Kubrickian. <laughs> That's good. I can, I'm picturing it. That's good. It's been Kubrickian. I, I, I think I'll, I'll settle for that for now. Yeah. That works. That works. Well, I'm excited to talk about your, your book and without spoiling your whole beautiful like closing chapter and your your thesis statement it's safe to say your book is about kind of english english society's interesting relationship with their their rebels and um i think uh specifically in your book the art and culture cultural rebels right so you know as a young maybe rebellious uh uh, you know, a writer coming up in, in academia and your own writing works. Was that something you experienced? Uh, not only in your enjoying art, but also in making it yourself. That kind so of interesting pu push and pull with the, with the culture there. Yeah, it's so interesting you should ask that because um, one of those kind of strange habits I've picked up during lockdown is watching old stuff on the archives on YouTube. And I was just watching this old show called TFI Friday, which you probably might not know from California, but every Friday night, it was like this religious ritual where all the new bands, the cool new bands would get to play um, on uh, TV. You know, you come home from school and you watch TFI Friday and I'd hear about people like Pulp and Suede. And I was just watching one of the old uh, Pulp performances. And you're right, this sense of rebellion. Um, it was kind of huge sense of England trying to, in, in the late 90s, make its mark on the world. And um, funnily enough, I was just watching the episode. It was just after Jarvis Cocker flashed his bum at Michael Jackson at the Brit Awards. And um, there's this kind of real frisson of excitement on TFI Friday from the presenter, Chris Evans, you know, the English rebellion, you know, they're, they're storming the ramparts against the, the, the hegemony of, you know, um, American popular culture. And uh, yeah, we've definitely lost that sense of frisson, but I was very much born in that cradle, if you see what I mean. And your your writings have intersected with with music, um, uh, haven't they? Like um, some some fictional, some not. Well, I was in um, I was in bands for quite a few years, so um, there was a there was a whole stage of of flouncing about on stages myself and trying my own kind of little form of uh, you know an Albion rebellion at the Bull and Gate in Camden Town and stuff like that. Um, so I was always looking to certain figures, people like Jarvis Cocker would. You just sort of cast quite a long shadow with me. Um, people like Morrissey, who I write about quite a lot in the book, 
And I, I, what I think is quite interesting is how these figures change as time goes on. They come from sort of being adopted as uh, as rebels into the you know um, into the mainstream, and there's a sense of them overwhelming the um, the consensus and doing something new. And then it's really interesting, you know, where I am now as someone who's who's in his 30s, seeing what happens to these figures. Some get marginalised; they become controversial, um, or they just kind of enjoy a kind of reclusiveness instead. And it's interesting how the idea of rebellion plays out over a lifetime. And I think that was all in my head when I started writing it a couple of years ago, really. Nice, yeah. And looking at some of your books, um, like how I left the national grid, I found that on your Wikipedia, but it seemed very interesting. It seemed like it was really uh, dabbling into uh, the punk culture a little bit. Well, yeah, that, that was, really kind of fascinating book to write because I think with post-punk a lot of the stuff like Joy Division The Fool there's a real sort of mysticism that comes in and on, on, on the one hand you can say well what's mystical about it it's kind of grey northern towns like Manchester and you know they're really bleak but people like Mark E. Smith are really interested in psychic phenomena you know claim to be psychic and read tarot cards and with Joy Division there was this sense of the otherworldly what I really wanted to do with how I left the national grid is I was inspired by Richie Edwards, the Manic Street preacher who, who vanished um, and was never found, the guitarist and lyricist of the Manics. And uh, this idea, could you leave the national grid in some way? Could you leave the kind of the grid that we live on of normal life? Does, does art allow you to do that? And people like um, David Bowie were in the mix there, this idea of being somehow alien and, uh, you know, an alien amongst us and, and leaving normal life. And in How I Left the National Grid, it follows a musician planning his disappearance and then through to the other side, what happens to him. And then um, a decade or, or two later, a, a journalist trying to track them down. And what I was really interested in is how the world had changed, you know, again, kind of spanning the decades. Um, and, and I think one of the things on my mind is, do we have that sense of mystery about artists now? Can someone vanish in that way? Um, can we have a sense of, of an artist being mystical or romantic anymore? Or is everything kind of very, very familiar and no one is um, at a distance? So th those were things were on my mind with how I left the National Grid. And, and I can now see from what you've said, the next step with Albion's Secret History, which is looking across history and looking at... Um, where these rebellious figures have come from and who's on the outside and how they've affected what's on the inside. So it's all been in my brain for a few years, really. Yeah. Well, back to your, your, your question you posed about, can somebody, you know, disappear like a pop star nowadays, especially when you talk about popular music, I think the window of what is considered popular music now is more narrow than it's ever been before. You know, like in the nineties, yeah. you could still have one foot in, kind of doing your own thing, you know, in, in the independent or alternative and then still be a pop figure. But, um, yeah. you know, now it's, it's much more narrow and everyone that does it is, is just marketing all the time on, you know, you know, you know, TikToks. And I sound like a, like an old, an old man now, those damn TikToks, <laughs> you know, filming, filming themselves constantly, um, tweeting. So, I mean, unless you use that to create a, you know, to create a mystery, then yeah, it's going to be pretty impossible. Um, but I think you've picked up on a really important point there because I don't want to just do this whole kind of, wasn't it better in the nineties stuff? Yes. I liked how more physical and more material stuff were, but I like what you've picked up on there with the fact that you can be creative about these new forms. Now I don't pretend like you, I don't pretend to understand TikTok. I'm, I'm you know, you know, pretend to do that, but 
as someone who uses Instagram quite a lot, I find it really interesting how um, images of these stars from the past get brought up and there's kind of communities based around them and talking about, I'm thinking about here with Kurt Cobain, there's so many communities on Facebook, YouTube and um, on, on Instagram that are kind of really in that place still psychically with Kurt Cobain and talking about what happened to him and that whole era with Courtney Love. And it's interesting how in a fragmented way, things like Instagram can pick up on um, sort of shards of that era through photos and share them. And, and there's a sort of a sense of trying to bring those scenes back to life in a way that's really kind of spooky, I think. Yeah. Yeah. When I, yeah. When I stumble upon a Instagram account or like a, like a Facebook group that's just about one of those like fandoms from another time i do kind of get some of the 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 weird i don't know if it's fake excitement but that like you know as a as a as a preteen and early teen i definitely used like america online chat rooms that were dedicated to one thing and and um it would just kind of kind of it was almost electric how it would kind of build how much you appreciated it when you kind of yeah share that you know so and that you know yeah, yeah. That, just kind of funny to trace that back because before that there was no kind of i mean there were zines people could share zines and stuff but there was no like immediate uh uh you know discourse on a uh on a topic or a fandom so well i am to some extent kind of a bit stuck in this era where people like Jeff Buckley were making grace and coming to the fore or, or, you know, Kurt Cobain smashing pumpkins, that kind of era. And I think, to be honest, what it is, is it made sense to me. You know, you could, um, the, the record companies could give really big contracts. People could, a, a new artist could be broken that could be excited, like say a Jeff Buckley, um, in the way that someone like Bowie had once been. And they could live doing that. They didn't have to also have like a nine to five job. You could be suspended in the mysticism of, of your artistry full time. You were kind of able to do that. We're now in an era where it's more complex with things like um, Spotify, people don't earn as much money. But um, one of the people I'm interviewing um, as a series of podcasts I'm doing with Zero Books about um, Albion's secret history is Gary Newman. And I think he's a really good example of someone who's really embraced this era that we have now, you know, he's on, he's on Instagram. He's really generous about sharing what his life is like with his family. And he's found a new relationship with his fans. And it's not like, you know, Gary Newman has lost his mysticism. I, I think it's still there. And at the end of the day, I think regardless of the technology that we're using, if it's TikTok or whatever, if it's the artistic, it's the artistic vision that someone has, that, that's what prevails. You know, I think the reason why Gary Newman, David Bowie, these people that I talk about in the book, they, they stick with us is because they had such interesting visions of the world through their art. And so no matter how present they might be on your phone via Instagram, if their vision is interesting, they remain interesting, I think. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good point. Um, so you did uh, also write uh, Dead Rock Stars, correct? Uh, which I feel like... Yeah like is also in that vein of, of music and and kind of critical uh a critical look at, at your unique history kind of overlapping right yeah i think that's a really good way of putting it it was um, i kind of brought my own life as brought up on the backwards of the isle of Wight, which is just kind of barely clinging on to being england so you know you were talking about fanzines and uh, you know you're, you're quite right back then if you could get hold of a fanzine or a flexi disc on the front cover of NME, it was just so cool. You'd really absorb every single track. And, um, Dead Rock Stars is a bit of a throwback to the era in which 
every track you could get hold of by an artist you loved, you know, every time they appeared on the TV, it was kind of sacred, you know, you recorded it on your VHS and you really clung on to this stuff. Um, and in that book, um, the, a lot of it's the, the diary of a rock star, uh, a young girl who's becoming a rock star from back in the nineties and, um, and her, her brother's sort of sifting through um, the remains that she's left behind her when she mysteriously died. And he's going through all of, you know, these old clips of her and um, trying to find out where she played in Camden. So it's a bit of a love letter to the nineties in a way. Yeah, that looks, that looks good. I'll have to definitely have to seek that one out. Um... But let's talk about what's coming out. Um, so uh, your book, I'll be on secret history. I've read it. Uh, they, uh, I, I enjoyed it. I'm a, you know, obviously I'm an American slob who just enjoys your mini cultural exports uh, with, uh, without ever <laughs> appreciating the context. And so I felt this book was very illuminating and, um, you know, it kind of shows maybe what these artists were rebelling against um, and why they felt they, they felt to do it. And then, and then what further impact they had. And then, like you said, are they able to maintain that kind of that, 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 I guess that, I don't know that at least spiritually, are they able to remain rebels, um, or not? And, and I felt, I felt it was great. So, I mean, I guess what, can you talk a little bit about kind of what people can expect, you know, you know, from this book? Oh, yeah, sure. Thanks. That's, that's so kind of you. Well, um, what I think they can expect is a thread through from the Second World War to Brexit, where we are now, of who's really shaped our identity. And, and you're quite right, rebellion's part of it. But what I was really interested in is who are the figures which shone a light on what it means to be English? People often say it's the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, that kind of thing. But I know that they didn't shape my idea of being English. It was more to do with Bowie, Gary Newman, people like Sway, Jarvis Cocker, Pulp. Um, so what I wanted to do is try and follow some kind of thread from there. And I started post-World War with people like Evelyn Waugh and um, playwrights like Sheila Delaney. And really then I started to think, um, I, I think there's a really strong thread from David Bowie through punk and the post-punks I think at the Blitz Club were massively um, influenced by Bowie. And so were people like Joy Division, Gary Newman. Um, and then I can see a link from them onto people like Suede. I think you can really hear in Bernard Butler's guitar parts, Mick Ronson and um, uh, Vicky Stardust, that kind of stuff. So what I was doing was mapping out this thread of, the, of, of how I think the English identity has really unfolded. And, and there's certain figures that I think cast quite a long shadow there. Oscar Wilde's not technically English, but he was kind of adopted by the English until we um, put him in jail for... Um, being homosexual, which was absolutely dreadful. But um, certain figures, I think, like Oscar Wilde, I think they cast quite a long shadow. So in a way, it's following a thread, but it dives off into different things like so certain clubs, um, like the Blitz Club and, and the impact they had on the new romantic scene, uh, which that led to the Romo scene in the 90s. Um, there's quite a lot about the Britpop scene, which I think was one of the few moments where we really felt like we had... Um, a moment in the spotlight on the world stage. Hmm. And um, then I'm kind of interested in, there's a bit about politics as well. And I think a lot of it's to do with Margaret Thatcher underfunding parts of the North and the creativity that came out as a result of the desolation that there was in an urban way, which is reflected in stuff like Gary Newman. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, it, there's a thread there, but it goes in a few directions too. Yeah, I I did like uh, some unexpected uh, stuff for me was like you you talked a little bit about uh, the British uh, uh, comedian or comedy television shows and stuff and and you know and, and being kind of a comedy nerd I like to think I know a little bit but I you were bringing up stuff I'd never heard of before and and movies too which was fun. Well, I, I always wonder how interested are Americans in English culture? Like we always assume everyone's so incredibly focused on what we're doing on this tiny little island but do americans really care what, what happens in english culture like i'm always fascinated to know well you'd i mean you'd be surprised especially like when it comes to tv and stuff like that i mean i think there is i think there's a pretty prevalent uh yeah at least adults in in, in my age range you know your 30s to 40s and interest in in you know bbc programming um and then even you know some some of the older stuff, just to get a taste for, you know, what, you know, what was television, um, you know, it's, it's as much of like uh, an archaeology or, or anthropology kind mm -hmm. of interest as it is, you know, entertainment. Um, as far wow, as music, awesome. as far as music goes, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about it when we get into it. Some of the stuff that broke, like you said, in your time with Britpop, I mean, it broke here. And like, I know, like a lot of people are interested and then You'd even see like you know guys that like had the 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 Union Jack up in the in their rooms and because they were really into Oasis or whatever and then they got really like you know they became Anglophiles in their own way because of that um, and then yeah some of it's surface level they know it they know they're British whatever and then some kind of got into it as as its own fandom um, and I would say you know there's yeah like there's a general I think there's a general interest in in your pop culture. Um, yeah, uh, at least uh, throughout my throughout my adulthood, for sure. Well, it's I don't know if you're being kind there. I sort of take that on face value. Like that's so interesting to hear because what's what's interesting from our perspective is that people like say Jarvis Cocker or Pulp, you know, became big in in the wake of Oasis becoming huge. That they'd been peddling away for decades and were sort of treated like marginal freak type figures. And then suddenly we're allowed in, you know, people slag off Britpop quite a lot. And I think there was quite a lot of um, sexism that was involved in it. But at the same time, having this kind of crass label allowed a lot of things to come to the fore. You know, bands were put together purely to try and exploit that Britpop label. But there was some really good stuff that came out through it. Like you mentioned Oasis, you know, their early stuff, um, you know, Blur. Um, pulp, suede, bands like that. There, there was some great stuff th through that era. You know, I think it's um, it's it's a very English thing to always be steeped in irony, and it's one of the things I talk about in the book. Is one of the things I quite like about America is that not everything's ironic. That, that there's a there's an ability to just express a love and a passion for stuff without everything being in inverted commas all the time. What was quite interesting in Britpop is we were put on the center stage, and, and the world got to see what we were doing but we were kind of a bit ironic and sly and weren't completely convinced with what we were doing. So it was a very English rebellion. Yeah, and, and I think I th we can talk about Britpop. I was gonna save that for our rapid fire of artists, but I think now's a good time. Um, but like, so like Britpop broke, like I, from my age range, so right, I'm 39 right now. So in the mid to late nineties were my teen years. And that was my, you know, first exposure, like my adventure into finding my own music. Right. So, um, uh, so I, I mean, Oasis kind of was the first big one. Right. And then people that got into that 
also got really into your pulps and your, you know, your blurs. Um, those were kind of like the the trifecta. In fact, a lot of them had to choose, right? Is, are you Oasis or Blur? And I yeah, there was a kind of a class line about it. Heavily. And I don't I don't know who would choose Oasis personally, but that's just maybe that's just. <laughs> But yeah, there was definitely something there. But then like take, you could take my wife who is, my wife is, was would have been a teenager five years before me. She's a, she's a few years older than me. And she was already interested in, I guess, you know, your post-punk kind of stuff. And so she was really into, you know, suede and the verve and, and blur and stuff like that. And she doesn't really care for, for, for Oasis, but she was kind of, I think because she already had that interest in, in maybe st stuff that wasn't huge over here, that she, um, you know, had a few years to enjoy that before it broke over over here, if that makes sense. So I think it kind yeah. of, I think age plays a, like when you were coming coming up and, and exploring new music, I think that plays a part too. Yeah. So. I think um, you, your partner sounds like they're, they're at the sort of connoisseur level a bit more. Um, <laughs> It's almost like Oasis kicked the door down in a kind of a brutish way. Um, and then there's more art school stuff that comes through. And I think that, I don't really talk about Roxy Music very much, but um, I, I think the likes of Blur, it's, it's that art school background that's kind of coming through. And there's a definite thread in English culture of, of the art school, you know, particularly I think with the post-punks bands like Gang of Four. And um, there, there was a real sense of the, the post-punks brought the intellectual um, aspect of um, the art school right. into the punk freedoms. So you could have you could have three chords and you could write a song, but they they, they, were, they were people who'd recently read J.G. Ballard. So they're bringing incredibly um, profound ideas about urbanity and apocalyptic scenarios like Joy Division did into essentially punk structures. I find that really thrilling. That marriage of the primal. And, and the you know the cerebral, the intellectual, and I think it, with with bands like The Fool and Joy Division, they go further than just being intellectual using the punk confines. I think there's some kind of really interesting stuff about um, um, kind of channeling. And uh, Ian Curtis, when he performed on stage, had this sort of sense of being possessed in some way. And The Fool would talk a lot about repetition and discipline and, and the importance of that in their work. And it was very much a kind of a sense of Manchester as an industrial place being present. So I think the post-punks really strained the parameters of what you could do with music. I find that so exciting. Yeah, and then, yeah, absolutely. And would you say like the clash was, I mean, you could almost see them converting from punk to post-punk in real time. And they also came from an art school kind of background too, or at least some of them did. Yeah, the, Cla the Clash are a, a really great example. I mean, I don't pretend to be comprehensive at all. I mean, one of the things that was quite interesting with my publisher is I only submitted it to a couple of people and it got accepted quite quickly. And I was, I'd was i very much written this book in the zero book style, which I love, which is kind of a pop culture, you know, Simon Reynolds type way of writing about music, but also it's got a kind of an academic inflection to it. So it was always quite a zero booksy sort of feel. But, you know, very early on, 
some publishers were saying, well, wh why don't you include this? Why don't you include that? And I realized very quickly, I just wasn't going to be able to include everything. Like I did some chapters on the rave scene or I really wanted to do a chapter on British psychedelia stuff like Levitation and um, bands like um, Darkstar. But in the end, I realized I, I can't catch everything itis. Like I'm never going to be able to say that I've really captured everything. So then the organizing factor became who are the ones that really brought a sense of Englishness and identity alive for me. So I kind of followed that thread. But it doesn't mean people like The Clash aren't really relevant and exciting because I think they are part of the story, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a we have we're going to have an episode on them. So I just thought I'd get your your two cents there. Yeah, Clash are fantastic. And I'll tell you what's interesting as well is I don't know if I don't know what the distinction is in, in America with education, but here we have a distinction between the state school and the private school system, which at its most extreme is called the public school system. And people like Sid Barrett, you know, even Jeremy Corbyn, the politician, and certainly the Clash and Pink Floyd, they came out of the public school system. So when we talk about and, and the Rolling Stones as well, so when we talk about them being rebellious, it was a kind of a quite cozy, well padded rebelliousness which um, we kind of conveniently don't look at quite a lot so of the that's, time. So that's interesting. So public, public school, are you talking about college or just in general? So I'm talking about, I'm talking about up, to the, up to the age of 18. Public school is, is basically where someone's paying a lot of money for it. And state that's school is where- That's so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's because public school here is state school. That's, that's, your, that's your taxpayer dollars, <laughs> yeah. free, free school. And then private school is your cushy, uh, you know, uh, you don't have to deal with the riffraff as you uh, get your education by maybe somebody that doesn't even have their teaching credential because they don't have to pay. I, I'm, I'm very biased. I work in education. I'm not, a, I'm not crazy. It's, it's, it's an interesting one here because people like Pink Floyd, you know, with the wall and this total kind of existential angst that, that they had, they're not from rough backgrounds at all. And I, I really wanted to kind of get that sense of a balance. So I talk a lot about artists who, you know, we haven't mentioned people like Tricky and Massive Attack and that whole Bristol scene. Oh yeah, we're gonna get yeah. I, I've got I got some questions for you there. We'll get to that, but yeah, you got it covered. <laughs> yeah, that's that's some good stuff. Hey, uh, so let's. Let's do this. Let's let's kind of go through, uh, um, and let's. I'm just going to name an artist that you talk about, and for the listeners, every single artist I'm going to name gets a chapter, or maybe the artist shares a chapter with another artist that that's related. Um, but these cool. are all artists that we are going to cover or already have covered, and I just want to kind of you know mention a little bit about what you talk about in the book but i mean we can save that for the listeners also to read it themselves i kind of want to know like what are some songs or albums that that you know by these artists that mean a lot to you because i figure if they've show, they're showing up in here you you have an interest yeah yeah that awesome cool so we talked a little bit about Britpop already um are you so i mean are you a blur or an oasis guy or do you feel like why do you have to choose um, I'm more of a kind of a suede pulp, but if I was, you know, I don't know who's ever going to put someone under duress in this way, but I love Graham Cox's guitar playing. So I always felt a bit of a, they're kind of awkward, arty kids, which I was. So I'm, I have to say Blur. 
Nice. Yeah. Good. You said the right answer. Um, <laughs> and suede uh, is suede is really good. And that was one I that did not break over here. I, that, that's one that my wife turned me on to that I that I had not. They had this really awkward thing going on where there was already a band called Suede. You know, God knows what they were like, but um, they had to pitch themselves as the London Suede. Correct. You know, so they're kind of dead on arrival as soon as you do something like that. You know. Yeah, that's like that. That, that they show up on the streaming services at the London Suede. Um, oh, does they yeah. really? Yes, yes, yes. Let's uh, talk about that. And the Manic Street Preachers is another one that never broke over here. And actually, I was interviewing. Um, Oh, Adam Steiner, who's also from your side of your side of the world. Um, and he brought them up in, as a, as you know, a, a their relation to the, thematic relationships to uh, the downward spiral by Nine Inch Nails. So I checked them out and they, you know, they have really something going on and uh, just always surprised that they never, they never really broke over here unless you were one of those, those uh, real, uh, you know, digging, digging deep into the, into the genre. Adam's book Into the Never is really brilliant and I'd really recommend it not just for fans of Nine Inch Nails but like you say he makes great links with with the Manics. Um, I, I don't really know why the Manics didn't break. I suspect that they're a really complicated proposition like there's not they were really, really sort of a moving feast you know Richie Edwards had a very dark very intellectual input on the first three albums and then it becomes quite broad but a lot of people might think well I already checked that band out and I know what they are and, you know, I'm, I'm not that interested. To be honest with you, I don't know why the Manics didn't become really big. I, I suspect they might have just been a bit complex. Yeah. Well, what would be your your go to album to turn on turn on some of us uh, ignorant Americans to uh, to what they have to bring to the table? Well, I think everyone should listen to the Holy Bible, which was their third album. About it for too long you've got to be quite careful asking me about the money <laughs> that's why we're that's why we're starting with it <laughs> but, in, but in brief but in brief it's it's one of the only albums in which someone is unafraid to describe the world how it is rather than trying to romantically describe it in a way that will benefit them i'll, I'll leave it at that but it's just incredible um intellectual eviscerating confrontational piece of work and and, and the architect of it richie edwards was confronting himself as well as the world when he wrote it so the Holy Bible, I think. Yeah, that's and that's the one I've listened to and was very impressed by it. So good man. Yeah, yeah check it out. So going back a bit, um, you do have a little chapter on on Bowie, or uh, as you're you're saying Bowie, and now I think I've been doing I did an entire forty two episode season saying it wrong, but um... <laughs> don't, think, don't, don't think don't think that I'm right I'm, I'm right and you're wrong. It could easily be the other way around. I think if you've done 40 episodes, I think let's go with you. <laughs> you know what? I think I think we're both right because I mean he basically became an American for the bulk of his life, only to kind of re re grasp it at 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 Britain and his like so from the nineties on. So I think That's we're true. both right. I think we're both right. What do you? What's your? What's your go-to for Bowie? As an album or as a track? Oh, whatever. Um, 
I'm really obsessed with Station to Station. Uh, and I first listened to it on a train from, I was in Morocco from um, Marrakesh to Casablanca. So it it really kind of blew my mind as a, as a piece of work. It, he's kind of undergoing, he's coming out of the Los Angeles kind of cocaine cloud and um, he's having a kind of a spiritual conversion in it. And yeah, I felt Station to Station was just mind blowing. It's so personal and there's so many influences in there, the funk. It's a kind of transcendent piece of work, I think. Yeah, that was all in our top five or ten albums. It's 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 really something, and it's it sneaks yeah. up at you because it's right before the yeah. the Berlin trilogy. Which I mean, I put all of those in my top five or ten. Also, I love them, um, and you can see some of those experimental things happening on Station to Station, all kind of wrapped up in some really just undeniable seventies rock. Well, the, the glam rock kid in me that was wearing eyeliner and velvet coats and you know, going to sort of glam rock nights in Camden, like Stay Beautiful. He's he's Ziggy Stardust through and through and feels disloyal, you know, talking about low or station to station. But the fact of the matter is I've lived through low and station to station even more than Ziggy Stardust. So he's that good that you have appendixes of you that have different loyalties. Yeah, and when I was saying that he kind of re- was kind of re-celebrating Britain after after identifying as American for so long, I think I'm referring to the, uh, the earthling album. And I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that. Um, I'm not that familiar with earthling, which is a good and a bad thing. Cause it means I've got it to look forward to. But, yeah. Well, I think that what I did at the time, which is a kind of a typically immature snobby teenage thing, which I would have done is the coverage at the time was this old granddad's trying to be down with the kids and pretend he's, you know, into Goldie. And that's why he's adding ha! some beats to what he's doing. So at the time, that's why I didn't give Earthling the kind of presence of mind that I probably should. I, I think it's worth another look, definitely. Hey, you're not wrong. I mean, he came off of Outside, which is one of my favorite albums that feels very genuine in how it's um, incorporating electronic music because yeah. he still had Brian Eno involved. And, yeah. and then to, to that, which was definitely a forced project to make an electronic album and really copying the kids, but uh, his singing and what he's writing about is very earnest that it's hard. It's really hard to, to hold it against him, I guess. So that's interesting because, because on station to station, I feel like in stuff like um, wild is the wind and, you know, tracks like that, where he he's literally singing to God for all that, David Bowie's very kind of stylized and, and there's mannerisms to how he sings, that whole Anthony Newley thing. It did feel like it was coming from his heart. So it's so interesting how you talk about that that becoming a complicating factor, the earnestness with Earthling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that and I think that that helps it. Uh, otherwise it would have it would have been like you said, just uh just some really pathetic uh uh old old man going to a rave situation that uh, I don't wanna I, I don't wanna I don't want to dismiss it at all, having not heard it. All I know about, um, is it one outside, is the whole kind of serial killer concept, which I think is really fascinating. But I, I really want, I've got to give it a bit of a deep dive into that stuff. There's there's quite a lot of late bowing. I, I got really into his last album. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And I just thought that was absolutely incredible. But I feel like there's, it, it takes me a while to really absorb something of his. You know, in five years time, I might not have, have got round to it yet because I get stuck on an album of his for a year, you know? 
Yeah, that's a great way to. I mean, honestly, that's a, that's 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 how things stick because you know, as we're growing up in the '90s, that's what we had to do. If something came out, it'd be years before something else did, and so we're just we're just absorbing that. And you know, well, that's so interesting that you make that point because you you and I, being of that generation, that's how and, and your partner as well. That's how we've learned how to absorb music. We don't just fall in love every other day with something new. We have a kind of a loyalty to it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the chapters I really enjoyed, and you know, it's it's brief but important. Um, and also, the out of the three guys that do this podcast, I I am uh, pretty obsessed with industrial music as a genre. And this band's dabblings in that genre are always interesting. But really, all three of us co-hosts are absolutely crazy about this band, Depeche Mode. So I loved um, your Depeche Mode chapter, um, and uh, as much as I like them, there's a lot I don't I don't know about them. So um, I appreciate that kind of being in there. What's that? You know, what's that? What is that band like? What's your experience with them, and and how that connects to to what where you've been while you were writing this book? really good question because what's really interesting with Depeche Mode is this kind of mystifying of the East, Eastern European. It's kind of the way they would be stacked on their album covers like soldiers and you know from the Eastern Bloc and I, I think that that's a whole other thread of Englishness which reaches into bands like Hertz who were um, really quite massive but not in England. Um, you know Hertz first album sold a million copies or whatever and this whole British thing of trying to act like you're Eastern European in some way is a very male thing that's gone on with, um, it's a whole kind of line of um, bands have done that. You know, it typically tended to be quite white men looking quite pale with a tie on and, and um, a, you know, a shirt, almost as if they just, you know, been sacked from craft work, but really um, <laughs> they've never been to it. <laughs> There's a whole kind of line there. Which, which, you know, and I'm not kind of having a, a, a dig at those bands. I love Depeche Mode, I love Hertz, that kind of, but the, the appropriation of an Eastern European sensibility within English post-punk is, is a curious kind of little fascination of mine. And you're right, there is a chapter about that. Yeah, yeah, I, and I appreciate Hertz, it. Hertz went to, um, Hertz had a budget trip and they went to Italy looking for um, a, a genre of music called Disco Lento, which is kind of slow electronic ballads. So they're not just informed by Eastern Europe. There's a kind of a Italian disco inflection as well. So it just fascinates me. Well, bands like Hertz, I'm trying to think of some other examples, but I think Pope were trying to do this early on as well, is, is, is marry the electronic to something genuinely emotional. And when you do that, and you, you can pull off a kind of a synthetic thing with passion, it's a really interesting combination. You know, think of something like Depeche Mode's um, Personal Jesus. It's a kind of an electronic stomp, but I, I think it cuts really deep. I think it's a really emotional song. So also uh, kind of in this, in this vein, because you can't really have one without the other, is uh, The Cure. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you actually, I'm going to try to pull it up here. You had a great, yeah, there we go. Yeah, I'm going to quote you really quick, if that's okay, if you'll, yeah. if you'll, if you'll allow it. Um, the, uh, the cure created a boundless emotional rather than physical space in which Smith's anguish was presented as unresolvable. Just as the song's drum riff does not develop, neither does the lyrical narrative, with Smith describing a state of almost subconscious torment using a wash of lyrical effects, wholly consistent with the blurred cover art. And I just think, I, I, I can't think of a better way to describe uh, at least what what we love about The Cure. It's so interesting. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was really influenced by Michael Bracewell's England is Mine, which is an amazing book about um, English music, which I think influenced people like the Libertines. And he has a bit of a dig at The Cure in it and says that the, the music kind of goes nowhere and it reflects kind of the English suburbs. but. I felt that was missing the point. The fact that it's this unresolvable kind of gothic state of mind is, is why you can lose yourself in a track like Pictures of You or A Hundred Years. The fact that it doesn't go anywhere is a kind of a really gorgeous indulgence, I think. And um, if, if you listen to, you know, but again, you just mentioned Bowie. With someone like The Cure, if you don't like the stuff like A Hundred Years or, or Plain Song, and I don't know what would be wrong with you if you didn't like them, but there's... <laughs> There's always love cats and in between days and you know there's the pop side of them as well so um i really wanted to look at the cure and i talk about stuff like the tim pope videos and um a lot of the imagery that they had about cats you know in love cats and um they're just incredibly english in, in a very lovable but sometimes very dark way the cure i just love them yeah yeah, no, I, remember, a... I remember going with a friend to see them and um, it was one of the best nights of my life, you know, just a, just amazing to see them play for two hours. And then, the, you know, one of my best friends who I was with was just like, that's the most boring two hours I've ever had. Aww. You know, it, it's, so, it's just so interesting, the reaction that people can have to the same experience. Yeah, sadly, they're still on my list. I mean, the bands we've talked about, I've seen Bowie, I've seen Depeche Mode, I've seen, well, not Roxy music, but I saw Brian Ferry do uh, Avalon in its entirety. And I have not, not seen the Cure. And I would love to. You've seen, you've seen a lot of the greats there. I mean, there's, there's not much left on your list to be. <laughs> it's true. You're doing it's, well, man. It's a nice way to live, you know. It's not gonna have, not gonna have too many regrets, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so, so what's your, what's your Cure album? What's, what's your, what's your favorite? Disintegration, oh, and uh, without a doubt, and I think that Plain Song is just immaculate. It sounds like he's found some Dead Sea Scroll in the Thames that he's reading from, and and every word it's like it's written in his bone marrow. It's just, yeah, Disintegration is just unbelievable. Yeah, I, that's I, I really, that, that's yeah. the one we're covering this season. I uh, I appreciate that. Well, that's a strong choice, you know. I think anyone who's who who has got regrets and has. Um, is kind of psychically stuck in certain relationships from their past that they wish had played out differently. There's just so much to find in disintegration. It's just, um, to me, the idea of the idea that something that's disintegrating is more beautiful than something is, that's pristine has really influenced me as a writer. The, the idea that I often find beauty in decay more than I do in things being perfect. And he just leans into that idea and opens up caverns of it. And it's just, yeah, I'm really glad you're covering it. I'm going to definitely check that out. Well, I mean, what's there to identify with in in something that's too polished or perfect? Nothing, right? I mean, we all have we all have our our cracks. That's uh, that's that's what that's what we 
connected. Yeah, the, you know? exactly. Yeah, you said cracks. The Leonard Cohen thing. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Right. And um, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Oh, and and Plain Song was our wedding uh, processional. So oh, uh, wow. I don't know if thematically that is appropriate for a wedding, but it 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 it, it you know. It, it was perfect. It was pretty. It, 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 it suggests to me, without being too earnest, how deeply the song must have reached into you for you to choose it. It has that sense of you want to celebrate every second of it. So, yeah, it's funny you should say that. I think it's a wedding song as well. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're what about, okay, so you do do a nice little, actually two chapters on Massive Attack and Tricky. Looking back at you. And like, you know, for me, trip hop is a, it's a very narrow genre. There's not too, I mean, okay. I could be also American perspective, but I don't feel like there's too many artists that, that fall in line, you know, and when I got into, you know, started uh, getting into trip hop um, by a friend who was really into it, it just, it still seemed like massive attack, uh, some tricky. And then like Portishead were like the big three and there wasn't much else. And, um, and I think massive attack just does some really cool stuff you know melding electronic slowing it maybe down a little bit and then bringing in like you know uh, vocalists that uh unexpected vocalist vocal work um yeah and you do some good writing on that what's your what's your kind of takeaway on on what massive attack brings to the table i think there's a big link between england and america with the bristol scene i think they were really influenced by new york and and i think you can really get a sense of people like Basquiat through that whole Bristol graffiti scene that Massive Attack were born out of. And I, I like what you said about the vocalists. I think Tricky's something exceptional though. I think that often with a figure, with a scene, you have a figure like Kurt Cobain with Seattle. And for me, it's Tricky with Bristol. I don't think he gets a fair crack in that sense. He's a pure artist, I think, in the way that PJ Harvey is as well, in that he's he's essentially quite a dismal human being who kind of secretes music as he goes. You know, he kind of sits in his, um, wherever he's living and, and messes about on the keyboard. And whatever he does is just incredibly genuine and real. And I think that there's a lot of um, people that tried to do what Tricky was doing, but it's a lot more innovative than people credit him for. And I think just in brief, you mentioned about the co-vocalist in Massive Attack. What, what Tricky would do is he would get women to sing his lyrics, so there'd be a kind of an androgynous layering to, to what was going on. But he, he seemed to, and I say this in Albion's Secret History, be more like a medium than a singer. He, he seemed to often sing things that weren't his experiences or he'd be getting women to sing his experiences. So there's always this othering that's going on in Tricky. And it's Mark Fisher talks about that with the, the way he uses samples as well. He, I really feel that Tricky was kind of channeling something 
Um, so he's he's he he really goes beyond just being a cool artist on the front cover of fashion magazines like The Face. That was how he was appropriated in England. But if you actually look at something like Maxine Quay or or songs of his like Christian Sands, he he's doing something very exciting. I think. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny. Maxine Quay is all that comes to mind. If he has another good album, I don't I don't know about it. Maybe it's worth it's worth diving back in. Well, I don't think any, I don't think any of them as complete albums seem to be as strong as that. But you know, Angels with Dirty Faces, Premillennial Tension, they've got stuff on it that's great. But but I, I don't think he was even trying to be an album artist. I think he did something really great. I think he's just an artist that keeps moving, and he would never lose sight of of keeping it genuine and keeping it real in the way that someone PJ like PJ Harvey did. So um, he everything about him is difficult. Like like I can't sell, you know it should be this album and then it should be that album. I, I went to see him live and um, he, he did the whole set with his back to the audience. And when when the female vocalist would start singing, he'd take her mic and she'd just have to kind of awkwardly dance and not know what to do. Nothing's easy with Tricky. <laughs> Nothing at all. Uh, that's funny. That yeah, that, that reminds me of the, the Peter Gabriel tour where he did like half the show lying down on like a bed under the stage. <laughs> I've got a, I'm a real glutton for punishment. I like people like The Fall and Chucky and yeah. I don't want people making it easy for me. I you gotta, you gotta work for it. I appreciate that. I don't know what's wrong with me. Yeah. I do appreciate that. Yeah. Well, that's what I got for you. I mean, your book, you don't have to work for it. It, it goes down easy. That's not to say it's, it's simple. It's just, you know, for somebody that doesn't have the context or the, or, or a lot of the history, um, I felt like, uh, I, I could, I could grasp and, and I think appreciate a lot of these artists, or at least, you know, some of the songs you mentioned more, um, so I, I can't recommend this book enough for our listeners. Um, so Albion secret history, and when's, when's, when's the, when's that drop in? When's, when, when can people buy this book? Uh, 26th of March uh, through Zero Books. It can be bought on amazon.com or .co.uk. Um, and yeah, not long now, soon be, soon be out. Yeah, nice. And, and I, I don't know if you have anything else to mention about the book. Um, like I said, that just right there is a list of artists that we're covering. So your question before about what kind of permeates into American pop culture, well, we're three music nerds and and there's, you know, <laughs> there's a, there's a third or, 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 you know, a third of your book right there that we're, uh, that we're covering. So. Well, I think the only other thing I'd like to mention is that I'm doing a series of interviews with some key British artists with zero books. It's going to be on YouTube. So I'm, I'm quite honored that I'm going to be interviewing Gary Newman, um, Kate Jackson from uh, and Dorian and um, Gazelle Twin as well. So if people enjoy Albion's Secret History, they, they might enjoy this series of interviews that I'm going to be doing um, with those artists. But um, I'm very grateful for you for being so kind about it and for having me on your show. Of course. Yeah. And, and give me those links and we'll make sure that we uh, we share those uh, through our oh, through our, uh, that's very our, cool. our show's page. Because that that all I mean, Gary Newman almost made the cut for this season. Almost. And we're, we're all big fans of his. So, yeah, that's that's great. He, he, he seems like. Um, a very warm, generous person, which is interesting given the whole kind of alien persona that's going on. But uh, I think he's underrated as well. But he's a huge star. It's not like people don't know about him at the same time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Well, all right. Well, thank you so much, Guy. Check out I'll Be On Secret History. It drops March 26th. Um, I can tell you as a music fan, I enjoyed my time with that book. And I learned a lot um, about, a, you know, you know a, a, a culture that 
that I didn't experience and then how that kind of intersects with 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 music that I do love which was a which was a fun experience thanks so much Eric. it's great talking to you yeah you too um is there uh how can people follow your your uh follow your uh your new activities and projects um I'm on Facebook as at Guy Mankowski author and I'm on Twitter at, at G Mankow, um, G M A N K O W. Um, so yeah, Twitter and Facebook is probably where I'm going to be keeping this stuff posted. Great. And we'll make sure we have those links in the show notes. Well, oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, of well, course. Thank you for about it as well. It was, you, you, you're so gracious and you, you guys know so much about music as well. It's just cool talking to fans, you know? Oh yeah, I, that's I mean that's that's why we do this, <laughs> you know. It's a few joys in life other than connecting on on music, in my opinion. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's true. Yeah, it, and you really kind of feel yourself come alive when you talk about stuff you're passionate about, don't you? Thanks to our new friend, Guy Minkowski. Please check out I'll Be In Secret History. It is literally out now, today. After you're done listening, go over, click on Amazon.com. Search I'll Be On Secret History. Purchase. It's wonderful. It's a good time. I wouldn't recommend it to you listeners if I didn't, if I didn't think you'd enjoy it. And we will see you at our next episode where we discuss the Murder City Devils in name and blood. Now come